0: All right, well, we are continuing our journey through the minor prophets. So those are the books that come at the end of the Old Testament. And we've said a number of times already, they're not minor because they're any, any less significant than the major prophets. Um, but typically they are shorter books. Um, and this one this morning is no exception of Obadiah. Just to quickly remind you of the layout, I'm sure most of you are very familiar with this already, but we've got the law, the Torah, as it's often referred to, uh, the Hebrew word, which is the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we've got the history books, which takes us from Joshua all the way through the history of Israel up to the exile to Babylon, and then obviously the return from exile uh, as well uh, with the book of Esther. Uh, Then we've got the... Poetical books, um, the five, so Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, uh, and there's so much wisdom, sometimes referred to as the wisdom literature, uh, God's instruction for us, which really does... Uh, give us a good grounding for all the challenges we face in life. And then, of course, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And Jeremiah, of course, being the author of Lamentations as well. And then the group that we're looking at now, which is the minor prophets, starting with Hosea, which we've already gone through, Joel, Amos, and now we're up as far as Obadiah. So um, Hosea, just to remind you, we saw the Lord loves Israel despite her sin. And we just saw with the Hose- it was Hosea this incredible love that God has for his people. And a uh, really wonderful study. Thoroughly enjoyed going through that. Joel, um, quite possibly the first of the prophets in the Old Testament uh, to be written. And it's interesting because Joel gives us this panorama of all that the other prophets would then uh, expound upon. And he just deals with from that time all the way through to the Lord's return. And there's uh, some incredible things come out in those uh, three chapters in Joel. Amos. Well, we saw this shepherd that's called out of his day job just to go and speak God's word. Uh, and he really just declares that God is a just God. And that's why God has to bring judgment upon sin. Obadiah, which we're in this morning, where we see a short retribution must overtake a merciless pride. And we'll expound explain it in a moment. Jonah, which we'll be moving on to, Lord willing, next week. We just see that divine grace is universal. Yes, The gospel went first to the Jews, but it's for the whole world. In Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham was that the whole world will be blessed through the descendants of Abraham and specifically looking toward the Messiah. The book of Micah, well, it's a book that really focuses on the Messiah coming. It highlights the town and the location that the Messiah will be born, so we'll enjoy that when we get there. Nahum, uh, well, it's another book a little bit like Jonah, dealing with Nineveh, but this time a little later on, doom is proclaimed, though they repented. When Jonah preached to them, they quickly reverted to their wicked ways, and so God brings judgment upon them. Habakkuk, wonderful book. Um, God's Plan of salvation is clearly seen that the just shall live by faith. It's kind of the key verse in Habakkuk and quoted three times uh, by Paul in the New Testament. Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is going to precede the kingdom. You know, we're told by Jesus to pray, thy kingdom come. What we're really praying, what we, we should, we, we, the correct understanding is to be praying that the kingdom will be established on earth. That's the kingdom that we're speaking about but the day of the Lord has got to come first. It's that expression we find throughout the Bible, and throughout the Old Testament particularly, uh, it speaks so much of this period of time known as the day of the Lord. Haggai is a prophet that speaks to the nation just after they've come back from exile. And this challenge to them is consider your ways. And we'll get into that. There's a lot in Haggai to be looking at there. God must be number one. And Zechariah, while repentant Israel, will finally see and acknowledge and accept their Messiah. And then Malachi ends the minor prophets. Judgment is certain for the wicked. So we'll see all that as we get there. Now, in regard to the Minor Prophets, uh, they're the ones you can see highlighted in colour. All the slides will go up online later if you want to review this, so you don't have to scribble and take lots of notes unless you want to, of course. Now, most commentators think that Obadiah was written around about 850 BC, which makes it quite remarkable, and could be that it was written even before Joel. <clears throat> There's interestingly a verse that Obadiah quotes, that other people say, well, Joel wrote that verse and Obadiah's copied it. Actually, looking at it this week, I think it might be the other way around. I think that Joel may have copied it from Obadiah. Uh, Either way, the interesting thing is that if this date is right, and it doesn't matter that much one way or another, but if that date's right, it means Obadiah was prophesying about all the things that were going to be taking place way, way, way ahead of even a hint of the, the problems that were later to come that he writes of. Other commentators put it round about the time of the Babylonian captivity. To be honest, it's one of those books it doesn't matter because the message is very clear in and of itself. Now, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, just twenty one verses. So most of you are thinking, Oh that's good, we'll be home in time for lunch today. And then, well, don't don't get too excited. There's a lot in here. Obadiah is not an uncommon name. There's at least 12 others in Scripture, but it doesn't seem to be any of the others that we have mentioned. So we don't know really anything about Obadiah other than the fact that his name means servant of Jehovah. It's a good name, isn't it? His name means servant of Jehovah. So really all we know about him is that he's a servant of Jehovah. You know, If there was one thing that that could be said of us, if there was a legacy that we could leave, wouldn't that be the one we'd want to be said that we're a servant of Jehovah? So, as I say, apart from his name, we don't know anything about him. He just steps onto the pages of Scripture, delivers God's message, and leaves. Okay? But it's very powerful in what he says, uh, as he said about the time of writing. But the theme is about the destruction of Edom. Now, Edom is mentioned in the Bible over 100 times, and by at least 13 different prophets, Obadiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah all prophesy that Edom would be destroyed. Some of the references are there. I just want to read this quote to you. The prophecy of Obadiah is unique in the character of its contents. It's a book of unmitigated condemnation, unrivaled by any suggestion of compassion or hope. It really is. There's no suggestion here that if you repent, the Lord would relent. We've seen that a number of times. I mean, Amos particularly goes to God. And on three occasions says, Lord, would you relent of the judgment you're going to bring? But with Obadiah, there's no hint that that's the case. It seems to be, and I, I do favor the early date, partly because God always warns before he brings his judgment. Always. And so that seems to be the pattern we have here, that God has given this warning to Eden. And this has been written down. And if it's right that Joel does quote from it, then clearly it was widely understood and known of. And so even the Edomites would quite likely have heard of these things. So there was an opportunity for them to repent, but there's no suggestion that there's any remorse or uh, changing of their ways. Henry H. S. E. Mears, in great book, What the Bible is All About, says this. This book is the shortest in the Old Testament. It contains only 21 verses, but it includes two important themes. The doom of the proud and rebellious, and the deliverance of the meek and humble. It is directly spoken to Edom and Zion. Okay, this is significant. And represents Esau... And Jacob, the two sons of Isaac, but it appears to all with and appeals to all with our two natures: the earthly, represented by Esau, on one side, so proud and bold, and the spiritual by Jacob, chosen and set apart by God. The story of the bitter family feud that takes us back to the days of the two brothers, Jacob and Esau, unfolds before us. Now, Esau was the older brother of Jacob; they were twins. But Esau was born just first. But if you remember the account uh, in the book of Genesis, he, is, is, um, Esau is born. Jacob is holding onto his heel as they come out of the womb. Of course, he was a grandson. They were grandsons of Abraham and the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, Esau, though, we find casually sold his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew or pottages it's given. You know, it just shows disregard for godly things, for anything that, that, you know, he had no care about the promises that had been given to Abraham and to Isaac, his father, that they were to be special, that they'd been set apart by God. It, it means nothing to him. He just casually sells it when he's hungry one day and Jacob's cooking some food. We find that he also marries two Canaanite wives, which again was against what God had said for them to do. God made it very clear with Abraham and with uh, Isaac that they were to marry in their own family. They weren't to marry these Canaanites, and lots of important reasons why when you do the background study for that. We haven't got time to go into that in detail this morning. But these two wives of his become a real grief of mind, we're told, to Isaac and Rebekah. But then we find towards uh, the end that Jacob... Well, uh, Isaac asked Esau to go and prepare some food for him to go and catch um, something in the, the field and cook it the way he likes it. Um, so Esau runs off to do that. But Rebecca overhears. And so she goes to Jacob and says, oh, look, I want you to go and do this. So they kind of do this together, they, they, they scheme, and uh, Jacob goes into Isaac pretending to be Esau and gets the blessing. The blessing of the firstborn, the blessing that um, Isaac pronounced on him. Which Isaac said, I can't, when Esau eventually comes back and he's all upset about it, he said, I can't give you another one because, you know, that was the blessing I've given it. And so this long history of uh, um, antagonism between the two uh, continues. Eventually Esau moves out of the land of Israel and moves down um, to the southeast of Israel area to the land of Edom, or also known as Mount Seir. It's a mountainous area. It stretches between the Dead Sea in southern Israel and the Gulf of Aqaba. We'll show you some maps in a minute uh, so you get the context of where it was, which is part of the Red Sea. It's in modern-day Jordan. So if you look at a map today, that's, of course, Jordan, uh, the country as it exists. Uh, Interestingly, you can see up there on the side, these are the dates that these countries came into existence in their current forms. Now, of course, we know of Israel in 1948, but what a lot of people don't realize is that most of the other Middle Eastern nations also are very young, and yet that's never really spoken about. We don't hear about that on the news. I mean, Saudi Arabia only formally became a country with the boundaries and territory we know in 1913. Lebanon, 1920. Iraq, 1932. Syria, 1941. Jordan, 1946. And Kuwait, as late as 1961. And yet their borders are never disputed, interestingly, but Israel's always are disputed. In fact, Israel were promised a much larger piece of land than they have been given. Um, we'll get onto that later in the Minor Prophets because those issues are addressed. Now, when we look at it on a map, Okay, so that's what we typically know as the Sinai Peninsula, erroneously named because uh, Helena, the mother of Constantine, the Roman Emperor in about 300 AD, decides to go on a journey one day. And she'd already done it a few times. She travels down here. She finds kind of this area. She finds a mountain. And she said, that must be Mount Sinai. And the reason for stating that was, it was a mountain. Now, that's really about as deep as it gets. Uh, she did this a number of times, sadly, and so there's a lot of things. You, if you look in the back of your Bible, you'll have a map there, and it will have down here, Sinai Peninsula, and it will have Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, somewhere down the bottom. And so because of that, and because the Bible says that Moses went to Mount Sinai, all the maps of when they leave uh, Egypt, this is Goshen up here, will all show them all traveling down here, because they have to get to this mountain that Helena said was down there. Nonsense. The Bible says very clearly that when... Uh, uh, Joseph left egypt uh, sorry uh, Moses sorry correct when Moses left Egypt uh, when he was fleeing after forty years. He comes over to this area over here, the area of Midian. That was never Midian. This was all part of Egypt back in the day. So this was the area of Midian. And it's around this area that he's on the burning bush and he hears the Lord speak to him. And that's when eventually uh, his brother comes and they go back. And the Lord says, bring the people back to me here on this mountain. Not here, but over here. So we understand that this is not the location of the the Mount Mount Sinai and the two years they spent there. uh, But it's actually over here and there's lots of compelling evidence of those things. But all that is just a little bit of a... A waffle for me. Uh, this is the important bit. This is where Edom is. Uh, now this area is also lots of red rocks around this area uh, because of the uh, what's in the ground and bits of copper and other things in the in the ground that give the the rock the coloration that it is. Uh, Edom, as you're probably familiar, means red. Edam cheese, obviously, because red around it. Uh, but Edom uh, means red, and apparently Esau was a bit of a redhead, uh, and that's why partly he gets this name Esau as well, as the same root. Now, as I said, coincidentally, these rocks around this area are also reddish. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily why Esau thought well, that's nice. I like, I like to keep my colours together, so that's where I'm going to move. But for whatever reason, he ends up down there. But I just thought this is interesting, just to, something else in Numbers 33. Verse 6 is speaking of them journeying from this is the children of Israel, at the time of the Exodus. They leave Egypt, and it says, And they departed from Succotham, and pitched in Etham, which is in the edge of the wilderness. And they removed from Etham and turned again unto Pi Hiroth, which is before Baal Zephron, and they pitched before Migdol. And they departed from Pi Hiroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness. And went three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham, and pitched in Mara. Now, it's a really key point in this, just as a bit of trivia for you. Um, but they leave Succoth, and they pitch in Etham, which is at the edge of the wilderness. But then they go through the Red Sea, and they go three days' journey, and they camp again in Etham. Now, if you didn't know that, you think they're going in circles. But actually, it's quite a simple explanation, because all of this area is where these red rocks are. And by the way, this is why it's called the Red Sea. If you should wonder why that was. That's why it's called the Red Sea. And it's given its name because of the coloration of the rocks in this area. Um, so what they do, they leave Egypt, they turn off the, the um, trade route that they were going, the way of the Philistines, which led up into Canaan, which is the route that Moses would have taken to get back to Midian, where he was taking the people. But the Lord tells them to turn off the path. They come into the wilderness. They get entrapped. They come down here. There's a massive beach. And this is where we believe they crossed over the Red Sea. There's lots of good evidence for that. Uh, After a while, they come back to the seashore. They pick up the weapons of the Egyptians that were left floating and so on. And then they travel all the way around here, eventually to Mount Sinai. But that's how they can be in Etham. They cross over the Red Sea and remain in Etham. It's very simple when you actually see it that way. Eden has a history of cruelty to its brother Israel. And when Israel left Egypt and they journeyed to the Promised Land, after they'd gone across the Red Sea and they started to go uh, on their journey to the the land of Israel, uh, to Canaan as it was known at the time, they asked Edom for permission to travel through their land. Edom refused. They wouldn't let them pass through their land. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 20. 400 years later, the Edomites eventually were subdued and become David's servants. Second Samuel 8 speaks of that. During the reign of Jehoram, which is when a lot of people think Obadiah was written, Edom revolted from under the dominion of Judah. And so a lot of commentators think that was the trigger for Obadiah being written. Second Kings chapter 8 speaks of that. And there's a number of other battles that go on between Edom and Judah and the reigns of King Jehoshaphat, uh, Amaziah and King Ahaz and so on. Now the Edomites continue to live in Edom until about 587 BC. Now that's about the time that Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And somewhere between 605 BC and 587, Jeremiah prophesied that Edom would be taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe leaning on the prophecies of Obadiah already. And again, before the captivity of Edom, Nebuchadnezzar first attacked Jerusalem, and Jerusalem and Judah taken captive, and then finally Edom is attacked as well. But at the point that Israel were being taken away by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon, the Edomites, who bear in mind their family, they look on at what's going on. They look on at the destruction, and they actually help the Babylonians. This is what we read from Psalm 137, verses 7 through 9. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it even to the foundation thereof, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed. Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Doesn't sound very nice, does it? Edom were immensely cruel towards Israel at the point that Israel went into captivity. One commentator said this, uh, They helped plunder Jerusalem's wealth and killed its refugees. The prophets make it clear that the Edomites should not have done this. Edom was always supposed to be a place of refuge for his brother Jacob and Jacob's descendants. These prophecies came as a direct consequence to the crime the Edomites committed against their brother Judah in a time of distress. goes on and says, These prophets said that the nations would rise up against Edom. The land would become a waste and a ruin, and the occupants would be killed with the sword. Sometime within 50 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, Edom was destroyed and taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. The Edomites were then dispersed all over the world. Some of them resettled in the Negev, which is in southern Israel, uh, which, today was, which today is in southern Israel, and took on the new name Idumea. Eventually the Idumeans disappeared in history as well. Now you may recognize that name Edumaeum because Herod was an Edumaeum. Herod was a descendant of Esau. The Nabataeans seemed to be the next group of people who appeared in Edom around 350 BC. They settled in the land and built up its capital known today as Petra. Unlike the Jews, the Edomites never resettled in their land as a nation. Now We know that there were still some Edomites uh, existing round about the time of uh, AD 70, the destruction of the temple by the Romans. And uh, from historical records, the last remaining Edomites were destroyed uh, in AD 70. That's it, they're gone. You'll never go down the high street or anywhere and bump into an Edomite. There are none left, unlike Israel, of course. God has preserved his people. But there's a prophetic element to all of this as well, because there is a prophetic future for Edom. Not the people, but the land. You see, when Jacob was returning after spending 20 years up with Uncle Laban, if you remember he fled away from Esau, he went up to Uncle Laban, and that's where he meets um, uh, Rachel and Leah and the uh, concubines, and that's where they have all the, the children, the 12 sons of Jacob and so on, the 12 tribes. Well, eventually, because of the way Laban's treating him, he decides he's going to go back home and take his chances with Esau. And Esau comes out to meet him, and Jacob's really concerned, so he sends on you know, his children and everybody ahead of him and things. And eventually Esau meets him, and they have this embrace, and this hug, which a lot of uh, Jewish commentaries and scholars think was very uh, a little bit of false pretense going on there from Esau's point of view. But whatever, Esau invites him home. He says, come back with me to my place, to Edom. And Jacob's response is really interesting because you might miss this, but it's prophetic. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. This is Jacob speaking. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that can go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. Jacob says, you go on ahead. We will come there, but not yet. And that's why it's prophetic. Because Israel has never gone to that place yet, but this was not just a, a casual promise, but of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. This is a prophecy that Israel will go to the very place that, Edom, that Esau was, to Edom. Well, uh, look at it in more detail. In Psalm 108, David begins by singing and praising Yahweh or Jehovah. And in the moment of worship, David asks Yahweh to exalt himself in order that those who loved him might be delivered and saved. David then pleads with Yahweh to answer him regarding the deliverance of his people. Okay, so it's a song of praise and a song pleading with God for deliverance from the enemies and so on. And God answers David listing different places that will be used to fulfill his purposes. Okay, so this is just from Psalm 108, verses 7 through 9. Elohim has spoken... It is set apartness. I exalt, I portion out Shechem, I measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. uh you can mispronounce that at home later. men ash is mine. And Ephraim is my chief defense. Yehuda or Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Okay. And then over Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I raise a shout. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, David responds to God in this way. Who shall lead me to Edom? Okay, so clearly David takes from what God says about over Edom, I will cast my shoe, as to be implying that I'm going to be going there. It's it's kind of shoes, walking, I'm going to be going to Edom. He says, who shall lead me to Edom? Who will bring me into the strong city? Who shall lead me? Now, again, you'll see in a minute, we'll talk about Edom. But it was a strong city, it was a fortified city, almost impregnable. This is why the Edomites were so confident in their ability not to be defeated. And so who should lead me into the strong city? No doubt Petra was in mind. Who should lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O Elohim? And you do not go out with our armies, O Elohim. Give us help from distress, for the help of man is naught. And Elohim we do mightily, for it is he who treads down our adversaries. So David understood that God was going to lead his people to Eden. David knew that Eden was going to play a role in the deliverance and salvation of Israel. And David emphasizes that he wants the help of God and not the help of man. God clearly then has plans and purposes for this geographical area. So God says that he casts his shoe over Eden. Casting your shoe is a biblical idiom that means the legal right to tread ground. Now that's significant. So here we see God claiming this land for his purposes, telling David that his people have the right to be in the area of Edom. Now, Numbers 24. Again, this is as the children of Israel were journeying into the promised land. They encounter this king Balak, and Balak hires Balaam and tries to get him to curse Israel. He can't curse him because he says, I can only say what God tells me to say. And Balaam eventually ends up prophesying over Israel. It's a fascinating prophecy for many reasons. It's much to the disdain of King Balak. But he says this, And now, behold, I go unto my people. Come, therefore, and I will advertise thee what this people should do, uh, shall should, should do to thy people in the latter days. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam, the son of Beor, has said, and the man whose eyes are open has said, He has said, which heard the words of God, and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of Almighty falling into a trance, by having his eyes open. Which is another way of saying, I'm going to tell you what God said. All right, so you know he gets on with it. I shall see him, but not now. Okay, so straight away we get the idea this is yet future. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. Straight away we recognize that as a, a prophecy of the Messiah. And a scepter, someone who rules, shall rise out of Israel, and he shall smite the corners of Moab. Well, good news to King Balak. And destroy the children of Sheth. And here we go. And Edom shall be a possession. Seer also shall be a possession for his enemies and Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remains of the city. So here we have this prophecy that Balaam quotes, speaking of this place. As David has already seen that the Lord is saying that there's a place, there's a purpose that he's going to take uh, Israel there at some point, a point of deliverance. And here, this prophecy confirms the same thing, that Edom is going to be given to the children of Israel. In Numbers 24, i just want to read the same thing. This is from the Living Bible Translation, or paraphrase. It's not translation, it's paraphrase, but it's it's helpful. I see in the future of Israel, far down the distant trail, that there shall come a star from Jacob, the ruler of Israel, shall smite the people of Mo and destroy the sons of Sheth. Israel shall possess all Edom and Seir. They shall overcome their enemies. And that's the key, once again. So we see that this has a real prophetic edge to it all. Now, when we go to the New Testament, we come to the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, we have a really interesting picture painted for us. Clearly, Israel are in view, and they are being depicted as this woman. So, idiomatically, Israel is the woman here. And it says, and the woman fled into the wilderness. Something is going to happen that's going to cause Israel to flee from their land where they are at the moment, to a place where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there 1,203 days. So for three and a half years, Israel are going to be forced to flee from their land and they're going to hide in this place, which we believe will be in Edom. Satan is going to seek to destroy Israel once and for all. And this is exactly what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24. That when you see the abomination of desolation, this idol that's going to be set up in the temple in Jerusalem, which will be rebuilt, when you see that set up, it's time to flee. And Jesus said, pray that your flight uh, be not on the, in the winter or on the Sabbath and so on. But he says, get up and go when you see that thing. <clears throat> so Israel are going to flee to Edom for, let's say, 1,260 days or three and a half years. That will be the last three and a half years of the time of tribulation that's to come. Matthew 24, let's read it. It says, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, uh, stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days shall be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake. Don't mistake that, thinking it's the church. A lot of people arrogantly assume that every reference in the New Testament is about the church. It's not. That's clearly a reference to Israel, and there's many Old Testament uh, proofs to show that that is what Jesus was referring to. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Now, the place they're going to it's a place that I'm sure you're familiar with and you've seen. It's appeared in numerous films and so on. It was in uh, uh, one of the Indiana Jones ones, The Last Crusade, uh, at least the front of the building was. This is that rock city of Petra. This is in Edom. This is the place we're talking about. It's this incredible city that has been literally carved out of the rock. This is where the Edomites lived. This is where they thought they were completely imp- impregnable. Nobody could get through to them. It's very, very difficult to get to, uh, other than on camel or horseback or any other means. Uh, you can't fly in there very easily Uh, There's no roads going directly to the place and so on. It's a big tourist attraction uh, in Jordan today. A lot of people go there. Uh, But it is absolutely staggering uh, when you look at this place. And so what a lot of Bible commentators think, that this will be the location that the Jews will flee during the tribulation and where God will protect them in the land of Eden, fulfilling the prophecy of Jacob and the words said to David and so on, as we've already seen, and the prophecy of Balaam. So three prophecies all speaking of the same thing. Okay, the book of Obadiah then. Let's get on to it. Edom's pride is going to be a base. That's the first four verses. Then the destruction of Edom, then the completeness of the plunder, the betrayal of Edom's allies, and the destruction of Edom's leaders. Reasons for Edom's downfall are given. God always gives reasons. never just does things. But Edom's judgment is retributive because of what they've done. And then finally, the book closes with the restoration of Israel and Judah and the extinction of Edom. Now, don't worry, because we're not going to go and spend 10 minutes on each verse, because that's just, that wouldn't be fair. Um, and because it's very self-explanatory, and having given you the background as we go through it it will make a lot of sense. So I'm just going to read through the book, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to go uh, and just use the Living Bible and just use a couple of verses and just pull out some things from that. So let's just read through, if you've got it uh, on your laps, you'll follow it through on your app or whatever you're using, uh, or it's on the screen anyway. So, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Eden. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock. Now you get the picture, don't you? Whose habitation is high. That said in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Well, that sounds a little bit like Isaiah, doesn't it? When Satan said, you know, with uh, his boast against God, the I am statements in Isaiah 14. Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down says the Lord. You can't help but see the language that's used here, particularly in the King James. You can't help but see a parallel with Isaiah 14. I'll let you go and do a a cross-reference and look at those things, but there's definitely a a similarity. You just get the feeling that Satan's behind what this nation did. If thieves come to thee, (coughs) if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? And if the gatherers come to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All thy men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men of Edom, the understanding of the Mount of Esau, and the mighty men? O Teman, shall be dismayed. That's one of the capital cities. Shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee. And thou shalt be cut off forever in the day that thou stood on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem. Even thou was one of them. For thou should not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither should thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither should thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity. Nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither should thou have stirred in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. You see, this is what Eden would do. It wasn't just they were egging Babylon on, but they actually, as it were, put the knife in as Israel were trying to flee and escape. Neither should thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near. Okay, so now God is warning of the judgment, the real judgment that's coming. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. It's an interesting. Uh, the Lord is going to judge nations according as they have dealt with others. And we'll see that in a second as well. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down. And they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion, speaking now of Israel, shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it." Interestingly, a number of the Edomites were in Jerusalem at the time of the Roman um, siege in AD 70, and they did die by fire. That was prophetically fulfilled in literal detail. Uh, And they (coughs) of the south shall possess the Mount of Esau, and they of the plains of the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host and the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites even unto Zarephath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Shaphard, shall possess the cities of the south. And the saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Okay, I'll just take you through it again, just quickly, um, but just pulling out some things. And this is now the Living Bible Paraphrase. And sometimes when we get some of these things in the Old Testament, it's sometimes helpful to have a paraphrase or something we look to. Nothing wrong with commentaries, but be aware they are commentaries. all right? But let's, this, is, this is quite helpful, I believe. So, so let's start again. So in a vision, the Lord God showed Obadiah the future of the land of Edom. A report has come from the Lord, he said, that God has sent an ambassador to the nations with this message. Attention, you are to send your armies against Edom and destroy her. Now it's interesting because what we straight away see, and this is exactly what we've read, but maybe it's slightly clearer to see here, that it wasn't going to be just one nation that was being responsible for overthrowing Edom. The Lord used a number of nations in doing that. And historically we know that to be the case. I will cut you down to size among the nations, Edom, making you small and despised. You are proud because you live in those high, inaccessible cliffs. And once again, you've seen the pictures, you understand the context. Who can ever reach us? We're up here, you boast. Don't fool yourselves. Though you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you plummeting down, says the Lord. Far better it would be for you if thieves had come at night to plunder you, for they would not take everything, or if your vineyards were robbed of all their fruit, for at least the gleaners would be left. Every nook and cranny will be searched and robbed, and every treasure found and taken. All your allies will turn against you and help to push you out of your land. They will promise peace while plotting your destruction. And once again, historically, we know this to be the case. Now, Petra this rock city was believed by skeptics just to be another one of those myths, like Atlantis and so on, because, of course, for many years it wasn't found, so the usual default position is the Bible must be wrong and the the secular skeptics must be right. That's typically the way things are done. Until, of course, it was discovered and the Bible was shown to be true, once again. It was actually in 1812, a Swiss explorer, um, Hart, uh by name, who was a Bible believer, set out to go and find a city. Now actually, because of the, the threats in the land at the time, because of uh, um, the Ottoman... Um, the, the um, uh, Muslims at the time, he actually learnt um, to speak uh, the native languages and actually passed himself off as a Muslim so he could actually get passage and get through. But he found this place, it was discovered, and it's obviously now it's become a historical monument of great interest. And uh, it just as prophesied by Obadiah, everything had been taken. When they found this place, there wasn't bits left. You know, you read in you know, Egypt with the Valley of the Kings how the, the tombs were ransacked, but there's still things left there. This place was stripped bare. Just as Obadiah said, your trusted friends friends will set traps for you and all your counter strategy, strategy will fail. In that day, not one wise man will be left in all of Eden, says the Lord, for I will fill the wise men of Eden with stupidity. Amazing how many times God does that. When people reject him, God fills them with stupidity and they come up with all sorts of preposterous ideas that people just go along with and believe, evolution being one of those things. The mightiest soldiers of Timon will be confused and helpless to prevent the slaughter. And why? Because of what you did to your brother Israel. Now your sins will be exposed for all to see, ashamed and defenseless. You'll be cut off forever. For you deserted Israel in his time of need. You stood aloof, refusing to lift a finger and help him when invaders carried off his wealth and divided Jerusalem among them by lot. You were as one of his enemies." You should not have done it. You should have not gloated when they took him far away to foreign lands. You should not have rejoiced in the day of his misfortune. You should not have mocked in his time of need. You yourselves went into the land of Israel in the day of his calamity and looted him. You made yourselves rich at his expense. You stood at the crossroads and killed those trying to escape. You captured the survivors and returned them to their enemies in that terrible time of his distress. The Lord's vengeance will soon fall upon all Gentile nations. Very key. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. We'll come to that in a second. Your acts will boomerang upon your heads. You drank my cup of punishment upon my holy mountain. The nations round about will drink it too. Yes, they will drink and stagger back and disappear from history. No longer nations anymore. But Jerusalem will become a refuge, a way of escape. Israel will reoccupy the land. Some 800 years before Jesus comes, before Israel in AD 70 finally forced out of the land, in fact, AD was the final uh, with Emperor Hadrian when they were forced out of the land and scattered around the world, a prophecy here that Israel will reoccupy the land. And we are living in the very days where we've seen that happen. And now we are seeing more and more Jews return to the land of Israel. Israel will be a fire that sets the dry fields of Edom aflame. There will be no survivors, for the Lord has spoken. Now, we just had a passage there that speaks about Israel being back in the land, and also the nations, all the nations of the earth being judged. This is exactly what we read in Matthew 25. You know, the sheep and the goat judgments. Some people get confused about what that really is all about. It's specifically about the nations... And Israel, let's just read quickly. When the son of man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, which is going to be in Jerusalem. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from the other as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king, Jesus, Say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. That's the kingdom we're talking about. The millennial kingdom on earth. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hunger and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw the hunger and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee, or when saw we thee sick, or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Jesus says, because you did it to Israel, you'll be blessed. goes back to Genesis 12, exactly what God promised Abraham. Those that bless Israel will be blessed. But what about those that curse Israel? Verse 41 of Matthew 25 goes on and says, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, Genesis 12, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in, naked, and you clothed me not, sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when so... We thee a hunger and a thirst, or a stranger, or a naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee. Then shall he answer them, Verily, and saying, Verily, I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, speaking of his brethren again, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, the righteous into eternal, or to life eternal. Last couple of verses. Then my people who live in the Negev shall occupy the hill country of Edom. So from the south, they're going to move just down a little bit further. Those living in Judean lowlands shall possess the Philistine plains and repossess the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. Interestingly, that's the area of Gaza uh, today. And the people of Benjamin shall possess Gilead, which is northern Israel. The Israeli exiles shall return and occupy the Phoenician coastal strip as far north as Zarephath. Speaking of Israel finally being back in their land and settling, given the land that they've been promised all along, those exiled in Asia, Minor shall return to their homeland and conquer the Negev's outlying villages. This is just an idea of the land that Israel will be given during the millennium. This is what has been promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and their descendants. In Israel has never had all of this land, not even in the time of David or Solomon. But under the Messiah... And this will be given to them, including this little portion down here, which will be the land of Edom. For deliverers will come to Jerusalem and rule all Edom, and the Lord shall be king. A couple of quick lessons then. Disregard for the things of God leads to pride. Pride leads to false security. False security will lead, inevitably, to people being cruel to others. Proverbs says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And James reminds us that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Next week, we're going to carry on our study in the book of Jonah, but let us bow our hearts and pray. Father, we just thank you for this reminder this morning that, Lord, you have all things in your hands. Lord, nothing is happening in this world that you are not in control of. That you are the one who rules in the kingdoms of men. And, Lord, we see the pride and the arrogancy of Edom, the disdain and disregard for the things of God. And, Lord, how it started with Esau, but the whole, all of his descendants, Lord, were affected with this same disregard. Father, help us to have a high regard for godly things. Lord, help us not to be proud, but to be humble. Lord, we thank you that you are in complete control of all things. Lord, we pray that you'll be in complete control of our lives and we would surrender the throne of our hearts to you. For Lord, not only do we pray thy kingdom come on earth, but Lord, we pray thy kingdom come in our lives. This morning, in Jesus' name, amen.